Whoa! Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Holloway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a quick little GDP minute. Listen, man. I just had James Devlin, former fullback for the New England Patriots, on the show, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed my time. Again, I want to thank Sean from For Boston. Definitely go check out his website um, for hooking this up and introducing me to James. Really good dude, man. And if you know anything about James, he's the hustler who w- went undrafted, was on a bunch of arena teams, then on the practice squads of the Bengals and the Pats, and then he just hustled and hustled and hustled, and then he ended up playing in three Super Bowls. Actually, more Super Bowls, but he won three. And um, I know it's a really big deal for the show to finally get a a major sports like you know nfl nhl mlb nba athlete on the show and um i feel really really blessed to have run it especially with james because he's a really good dude and he talked about just like the importance of just like keeping your head down and working and i know it sounds so quintessential and like just like stereotypical for an nfl player to say but dude like he had no reason to believe that he was going to be a really important role on the Patriots. But he just had a little tick in his head that was like, yo, if I just keep this going, I know I'm going to get there. And I just like love hearing shit like that. You know, um, for all the Pats fans out there, I know you guys wanted that classic Patriots content. So he discussed in depth like, Brady's competitiveness and Belichick's competitiveness, the Patriots as an organization, his favorite Super Bowl, his favorite block. But, I mean, my real favorite moment is him just, like, talking about destiny and, like, kind of believing, just seeing weird stuff happen along the way and along his journey. You know, I totally relate to that. And, uh, I don't know, it was a blast, man. And, um, listen, if you tune into the episode, all I ask, dude, all we ask is just share it with a friend, please. And if you don't have friends, you shouldn't be listening to podcasts. And I know I blew it one little portion in this episode. I didn't say, hey, give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do. Blew that, my fault, but it's James Devlin. And I want to shout out the research squad. They did an awesome job this week. And uh, we're just going to keep the GDP train moving, man. All love. I hope you guys enjoy. This is James Devlin's Golden Hour. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. Hi, I'm James Devlin, and this is my golden hour. Hey, man. Well, it's good to see your face. I've seen you on TV a bunch, but uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me, man. And I, again, I apologize for uh, some technical difficulties. I, like an idiot, was doing doing some work downstairs on the house and unplugged my modem and then I came up here like nothing was wrong and logging on I'm like what is going on and I had to reset it all and but we're good now so hey, so has that been your quarantine focus you just like building around the house and like switching stuff up a little bit I mean for a while it was uh it was literally just kind of trying to get through the days with the kids but um we are having we are hosting my sister-in-law's wedding here in two weekends from now next friday and uh how many people it's it's small it was going to be the big the big ordeal um you know hotels and ballrooms and all that stuff but um because of covid it got canceled so 
we're just doing a little thing on the beach, which we're like two blocks off the beach, and we're all going to walk back here, have dinner. Um, so I'm just trying to get the place ready for that and do a couple small projects, painting and, um, you know, just stuff like that. You know how it is. Well, hey, before we move on, I got my three kick-ass producers on the phone. I got Brendan. I got Sarah. Uh, well, we don't have slugs. I got Lexi and Riley. Guys, say what's up to James Devlin. Hi, James. Hello. Hi, James. Hey, guys. How you doing? And dude, also before we move on, shouts out to Sean for making this happen. Yeah, right? Sean from Fort Boston. Love the guy. Well, you guys did a photo shoot, right? Mm-hmm. What, what was that for? New new gear, new hats or something? Yeah, he had a bunch of hats. And he was he was always hooking us up with uh, sweatshirts, hats, shirts, all that stuff. And um, so I got, I think, Danny Mandola, Dwayne Allen at the time. We all went out. And he actually just brought a guy right to the stadium. We were like, just got in from practice. Got a couple guys to go out right there in Patriot Place. And we just took a couple pictures. You know, Sweet. I... You can't really make this mug look too too good, so it was mostly mostly those other guys. Well, dude, how long's the beard taking you to develop? Because that would probably take me—I don't know—six, seven years, probably. Yeah, um, I started. I've I've always had facial hair. I just never let it get to this length. Um, but I trim it every once in a while. This is I think the last time I saw like my chin skin. Um, it's probably 2013, maybe. Um, but right did you, did you see chin skin when you were a brown bear? Yeah, but I just had scruff. It's a little bit of scruff, yeah. Hey, well, dude, speaking of which, as I sit on the phone, I'm rocking it. See it. I already saw it, man. It's a dude, beautiful thing. Dude, so I hit up my guy. I hit up Paul, the guy who owns it. I was okay. like, hey, I'm running an episode with James Devlin. And he goes, Paul, I hope you're still tuned in. He goes... I know him well. He used to love the chicken falafel combo wrap. Is yeah. that right? Yes, sir. That's exactly right. I, was, I, I used to live at the top of uh, Thayer Street where Thayer met Hope. And I remember so many nights I'd be like, you know, just getting in from the bars at like 150. Um, and that place, and Eastside Pockets closed at two. So I would hit a dead sprint all the way down Thayer, walk in the door at like 158. Um, you know, and then get, they give me all the baklava at the end of the night and all that stuff. So it was, that's one of my favorite places, man. Always will be. Dude, I would always say, yo, extra Parmesan cheese, please just shower it on. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Hey man, just quick question before we like really dig into stuff. So now that you're not playing, how does your diet change? Like, are you... Are you significantly lighter than you are normally in season? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I've uh, I've kind of like adapted all my training and eating regimen around. Like before, you know, for the past ten years, it was always like performance based. I had to be ready to go the next day, and now it's kind of like I get to peel that layer back and then just kind of do things more for feel and you know, feeling good, looking good, trying to be aesthetically. Um, you know, pleasing for my wife. And uh, so really, you know, nutrition, um, I'm eating probably less calories. I'm probably, I might be burning more now than I ever did before. Um, I've been like ramping my training up really for no reason, just because I feel like it, you know, I like to put my body through suffering. Um, and uh, so yeah, diet hasn't changed all that much. Just you know, with three kids, I just get it in whenever I can. 
Um, like when I texted you that I was pounding a coffee, I was also just, you know, wolfing down a burrito, <laughs> just, you know, just whatever, whatever I can get throughout the day to keep my, uh, my energy levels up. That's what I got to do. Now in, in season, what was, what would your maintenance calories be normally? And would you track in season? Not really. No. I mean, um, in season it was, you know, we're burning, a pretty good amount of calories while well, we're out there at practice practices anywhere from two hours to two and a half hours. And, uh, so, you know, just, I was big on like protein shakes. I was constantly behind the shake counter, just, you know, making up little concoctions, whatever it may be, vegetables, fruits, um, you know, they got it all there in the facility. So I was taking full advantage of that. And then, you know, they always have food out too, and it's always real clean, good food. And, um, so, I mean, should I be eating, you know, four or five meals a day and then, you know, oh, like full meals, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I say a meal, but sometimes it was just like, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something like that. I mean, um, you know, so it was just kind of just taking it in however I could get it. So you think now, like, even though you're not playing, you think your energy expenditures at as high, if not higher, like you're just going psycho on your body? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing, I've been getting up at 5 a.m. every day since I've retired and, and working out, whether it was in New England or down here um, in Jersey, and just kind of doing my own thing, following my own plan. I got a, I got a good buddy that owns a gym down here um, in Jersey. And oh, so, you got lucky, bro. Yeah. I know. You got I know. so lucky. I know. It was a blessing. Um, you know, and we just been we just been getting after it every morning for a couple hours, and uh, you know, running and doing all kinds of you know hypertrophy training and all this this stuff that you know I used to just kind of yeah, I used to let go by the wayside because I was just always focused on you know trying to get as strong as possible, trying to perform as best I can, and so now I've been able to kind of change my my scope of training. It's been pretty cool. I was going to say, have you dialed back on compound lifts, like deadlifts, squats, snatches? Yeah, hundred yeah, um, percent. Still squatting a lot because I just, I loved it. I fell in love with it um, like five, six years ago. I know. What's wrong but with you, dude? There's, there's nothing There's nothing that makes my body uh, like adapt and change more than squatting. Squatting and deadlifting, those two together, it does it for me. And I, and I just always feel like it's a good way to like boost my testosterone and and, uh, you know, I always feel better. I know squatting when you're in it, it sucks, but as soon as you're done, you feel so accomplished. Cause I mean, you're moving heavy weight and you're calling on everything in your body to, you know, to get down and get back up. And, uh, and so that just, that just does it for me, man. So are you doing more plyometric squats now, like goblet, like, or are you still going wicked heavy? Still going wicked heavy. I'll always do that till I die. I feel really? like that's, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've gotten away from just, you know, just a straight bar squat. I started doing safety bar where the bar comes over your shoulders just to keep that compression off my spine. Cause that's kind of what happened at end of end my career. So, um, you know, it's, it's just kind of adapting and figuring out ways to, to try to push myself. Now, when you say end your career, like, I mean, you could never really be away from football. Like it's been no. part of your life forever. Yeah. So yeah. 
when you retired, was there like three days where like your brain shut off on football? Was it like the weirdest thing ever? Uh, no, honestly, because it was, you know, in the off season, I have a very good, um, you know, ability to kind of compartmentalize myself. And while training is always definitely like my connection to the game of football in the off season, um, I get, I get away when I'm da- I come down to Jersey. I live on the Jersey shore, um, South Jersey. And it is, uh, it's just like my little sanctuary down here. And I just kind of just live like, like, you know, like anybody, you know, and it's, uh, it's just a good way to get away from the game of football. So doing that and then kind of making the decision to, to finally, you know, announce my retirement. Um, it was kind of like nothing had changed, you know, I, I had already kind of come to grips with it when I first, you know, found out of my injury and everything that ended my season last year. Um, and I was kind of battling with it and talking it over with my wife and my family and, you know, it came to the decision that it was, it was time. And, uh, so by that time, by the time I announced it, I had already, you know, gone through every, every process and thought about it so much that, you know, it was, it was kind of business as usual. What was that like making the decision for you? Was it just like terrible? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I first got hurt and then I, and then I like kind of discovered, um, you know, what was really going on, it was definitely like, it was a punch in the gut. Cause I had no idea that like anything was wrong with me. And I, and it really wasn't like that prevalent. It was, uh, it was just kind of an underlying thing that I had been dealing with and didn't even know it. Um, and you know, but it was something that I just couldn't now that having known it, I just couldn't, couldn't bring myself to, to play the game the same way I've always played, you know? So it was definitely a tough, tough uh, conversation to have with my wife. I mean, there was a lot of tears shed and, um, but it was, you know, the solace I had in it was that I was making the best decision for my family, you know, and that was family over everything. And it always will be my number one priority. And um, so that was, that made it that much easier, you know? I just can't imagine what it's like for you. Like you, obsess over something your entire life and just one day it's like all right it's gone mm-hmm. like i mean it's just i imagine you know i'm like year four and building my brand right like yeah. tomorrow they were just like all right there's no more gdp it's done i'd i would like swan dive off the condo like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah dude I, I i've been saying this for a while now it's uh it's actually been like almost like enlightening in some respects like because when I was, when I was playing and I knew that I had to perform, I was, my brain was like so focused on the game of football. It was so focused on preparing, you know, in the season, I'm constantly, you know, getting ready for games and preparing game plans. And then when I'm in the off season, I'm training and doing all that stuff. I know I just said that I, I was able to compartmentalize, but training was, it never really shuts off though. Exactly. Exactly. And now, I've been able to like kind of just put that aside and I really have been able to like expand the things I think about throughout the day, you know, and it's been, it's been kind of cool. It's almost, you know, it's almost like, like getting like uninstitutionalized a little bit, you know, because when you're in there, it's just football all day, uh, winning, competing. 
And now all of a sudden I'm just thrust into this world where it's just, there's really none of that. There still is. I mean, I'll bring that stuff to whatever I go into next, but um, it's just like a freedom, you know, there's like a freedom about it that I just never experienced before. It's been pretty, pretty cool and pretty eye-opening, you know, just uh, about all the stuff you can get into in the world, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, was there anything from your Brown days that you had started like back then, like a hobby or like a side hustle that you're kind of revisiting now? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I was, I studied engineering at Brown. I was a mechanical engineer. And so I've always been like kind of fascinated with the sciences and I've been brushing up on, um, you know, some, like I got a couple of books over by the bed. Um, I mean, I got the brief history of time by Stephen Hawkins and just like existential type stuff. It's, it's like, it's pretty out there. I, I read it at night and I fall asleep about three pages in every single night. Cause it is deep and I'll read like, <laughs> you're in Stephen Hawking books. Yeah. I'll read a couple book, a couple pages. Um, and then I'm like lost in thought, you know, and it's just all about like space and gravity and, uh, and now it's all, now I just started a chapter last night on time and like, you know, the relatively relativity of everything. It's like, man, it's deep. And it's like stuff that I haven't even thought about. Cause I've just been like, Oh, I'm a football player. <laughs> you know, I have all this stuff. I'll, I'll come back to it later. And now is later. So yeah, it's been cool to kind of, you know, re reapproach all these things that used to, uh, used to, you know, fill my brain when I was in school. Now, are you a religious guy? Uh, not really. I mean, we don't go to church, you know, I'm, I, I would say I'm spiritual, not religious. Yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. So sometimes when you read those science books, you're like, Whoa, uh, I, am, I am like a tadpole in this massive pond. <laughs> I know. I know it can, you can go down a rabbit hole, man. And it is, it is just bonkers what your brain can think of. And, um, and then you kind of just snap back to reality and you go back to, you know, looking at Instagram <laughs> and it's just, yeah. It's bizarre. Um, okay, so just quick segue. So I, I just kind of want to talk to you about like your Brown days. So sure. you're like hustling. You're like star player on the team, but you know your senior year that you're not going to get drafted. Does that go through your head, or are you like I might, I might get drafted? Uh, no, I knew I wasn't getting drafted. I mean, it was, um, it was pretty, it's pretty rare air to be drafted out of Brown. And um, any Ivy, right? Yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, like we had, when I was a freshman, we had Zach Diassi, um, long snapper for the Giants. He was drafted in the fifth round. My year, we had a guy drafted in the seventh round that the Tennessee Titans, Dave Howard. Um, and, uh, but that was like, I mean, that's, that's been it since then. I mean, um, and that was, you know, 10 years ago plus three for Zach. So 13 years, there's been two draft picks from Brown. Um, I'd say there's probably one or two every year from the Ivy league in total. So yeah, I knew it was the, it was slim chances, but I just wanted to get an opportunity, you know? Um, so I knew it was going to come, you know, whether it was like an undrafted free agent signing right after the draft or a tryout and it ended up being a tryout. But where did the NFL dream start for you? Like since you were young, you always wanted to play in the league. Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, started playing football when I was seven, grew up outside of Philly, um, diehard Eagles fan. 
um, for the first, you know, 20 whack, whack. <laughs> I, know, I know, believe me, man, when I, in 2004, when the Patriots, when the Patriots beat the Eagles, uh, in the Super Bowl down in Jacksonville, I was I, there. Yeah. Oh, in, in house. Huh? Yeah. With the Rodney Harrison pick, man. Oh, wow. Wow. Good for you. Well, I was in my friend's basement, um, and I was rooting hard against the Patriots and yeah, I loved everything about, about football, man. And, um, the NFL was just like, it's easy to, when you love football, it's easy to just say like, yeah, I want to play in the league, you know? Um, that's, and it was just, it was my dream from the day I first put on pads. And, um, so it was really cool to kind of follow it, even though it was, it was, there were some dire moments. Um, you know, it was really a, a cool journey to get to where I wanted to be when I was seven. You know? Well, so let's say at the end of your senior year, like you have a fresh season where there are a bunch of people breathing down your throat, like, Hey, like, you know, this probably won't work out, but you do have that Brown degree. You could go make yeah. six figures easy. Like, was that a constant conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my parents, um, you know, I was, I had just graduated in what, like May or June, um, in 2010, 2010, I graduated from Brown and it was just, um, at my parents' house, just kind of like trying to line up interviews, but not really wholeheartedly doing it. Just kind of like biding my time. Um, oh, well, you were probably cringing doing it, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and I'm like sitting on a computer in my basement, in my parents' basement. Um, and all of a sudden I get a, you know, a Facebook message from this guy who worked for the Oklahoma City Yard Dogs in the arena team, in the arena league, right? And I read it and I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is legit, but let me respond. Um, you know, and then I go up, <laughs> I go up stairs and my parents are there and I'm like, Hey, yeah, uh, I just got, you know, contacted by this guy with an arena football team, Oklahoma city yard dogs. Um, I think I might pursue it. And they're like, are you kidding me? We just, we just paid for four years of Brown. Um, you just graduated. Like, is this really what you want to do with that? You know, we're the yard dogs. I know who the yard dog spelled with a Z at the end. Like, is this, <laughs> is this a joke? Um, but I, you know, I did it cause I just, I wanted to play, I wanted to play football and I knew that, you know, you're only young once and I needed to, to get in whatever I could and, and just try to see that passion through. And, um, if I hadn't, I would have regretted it a hundred percent. Now the yard dogs do to, he was like a scout. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I had the, um, I know the guy who runs the Massachusetts Pirates, which is the arena team in Mass. Yeah. And his name's Jawadi Team. And how he'll scout players is he'll hit them in the Instagram DM. That's like an yeah. effective way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then back then it was Facebook. Instagram wasn't even around back, back in 2010, I don't think. Or maybe it was just starting. But um, yeah, man, that's. Is it, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of football guys out there, you know, people that are playing college and they want to pursue something, something past and the and NFL never works out. That's why I loved the XFL for what it was going and the USFL. And, um, I played in the UFL, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of talent, um, out there. It's just, there's only so many roster spots on that NFL team. So did you have a bug at the time? You're like, all right, like, I still got to send it to the NFL. Like I know I got my odds stacked against me. Like I'm not a dumb guy, but like, I just got to send it. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I knew, I knew, yeah, I knew my, I knew my chances were slim. Um, I knew, you know, that it was, it was a little far-fetched and probably not the smartest thing to do. You know, if I really went back in time and I, you know, and I sat there with the, the decision to go play in arena football um, or pursue like an engineering job somewhere. I mean, definitely the smart thing is pursuing, you know, the engineering degree because then you can start making real money. You got a solid, solid, like salary based position. Um, you know, and I just, I don't know. I, I just kind of like went on a whim and said, you know what, let's just do this football thing. Hey, for, if it lasts a couple months, great. If it lasts a couple of years, great. I mean, in this case, it lasted me 10 years and I got to where I wanted to get. So Hey, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it looked pretty good from here too. So, yes, sir. You got three rings on your fingers, right? Yes, sir. Let's go. Um, so, the yard dogs. I mean, we, the research squad was getting deep, but mm-hmm. did you play one game with the yard dogs and a bunch with the Tuskers? Yeah, yeah. So, I got to the AFL. Um, it was just a tryout. I ended up making a team. They had like four games left in this in the season they were making a little playoff push and then the second to last game they got knocked out of playoff contention so then the last game i got in um and played against the tulsa talents and uh i really didn't do much i had like one quarterback pressure i but you know in, in arena like the ball snapped and the quarterback's throwing the ball it's like ridiculously fast i ran down on a couple kickoffs like had fun because it was just like wild, like nothing I'd ever experienced, you know. Um, it's just like football, like, you know, sped up to like times a thousand. But, uh, and were you in, you moved to Oklahoma City for the one game? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was, down, <laughs> I was down there for like a total of like five weeks, um, like from early July till, you know, late July, really. And then um, from then I came back home and again, nothing nothing came of it i was actually down the jersey shore and with my friends and my agent said like hey you i got you a tryout on monday this was saturday i got you a tryout down in florida um for the florida tuskers um it's a it's as a fullback so just get ready to do some fullback drills and i went down there and made the team and then um and that was that was a really cool experience. The UFL was like a really, really unique thing at the time, um, and it was it was really such a good stepping stone for me because there's so many ex NFL guys. I was the, one of two guys that had no NFL experience. Everyone else on the roster it was at least in a training camp somewhere, and uh, so it was really good good opportunity for me. Gruden was your coach, right? Yeah, Jay. Yep. Um, yeah, and then. You know, coincidentally, I went to Cincinnati right after the season. And then after, in 2010, finished the 2010 season on Cincinnati's practice squad. And then to, in 2011, they hired him as the OC in Cincinnati, Jay. So, working. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a perfect, perfect thing. And then I got to spend another year on practice squad there in Cincinnati, learned a lot from their, their fullback, Chris Presley, who I'm still really good friends with. And, uh, and then, you know, the Patriots in 2012 and the rest is history. 
Well, so you sum it up like, oh, it was just like a couple of years, but like, no, like you're, you're grinding. And yeah. I'm sure there are a bunch of people be like, hey, man, like you should probably just like give up on this whole thing, dog. You're like, yeah, I hear you. Like it, when you were on the Tuskers, in your mind, did the thought kind of start to formulate, formulate like, all right, I'm, I'm a little bit closer to the NFL. Like that yeah. was going on. Yeah. And everything kind of like, you know, the arena, arena was like my first stepping stone. It was my first experience playing professional football, making money playing football, you know? And what, uh, what were the checks like back then? Uh, the first, so I was there four weeks, right? The first three were $200 a week. <laughs> and then, and then the one game I played, I made 400 bucks and then they'd pay you. They, or they, they'd give you like food coupons to go to like different restaurants. Um, and it was funny, like if, if we won, they, they get like a couple of Mexican restaurants, this place of Buelos down in Oklahoma city. That was like pretty good. Um, but then if you lost, you get like Taco Bell. <laughs> so, Torture. Yeah, I know. Um, but it, you know, we learned to love it and it was like a kind of, kind of like a funny thing. You know, because then the whole team would end up going to these restaurants and stuff. It was it was actually a good time, um, you know. But and then and then once I went to the UFL, I kind of like graduated, and it was like oh, another step up. But it was still right under the NFL, so I knew that I was progressing in the right direction. I just had to, I just needed to get like an opportunity somewhere, you know. And then the practice squad was the perfect opportunity for me because I was playing fullback. I had like re invented myself as a fullback and I'd really never done it before. So I was, it was a really good learning experience and some time to just kind of sit back and watch some guys do it and learn from the best, you know? Now, when you join the Cincinnati practice squad, you get cut like last day, right? Mm-hmm. So dude, like you're grinding for like however long the UFL, the two teams yeah. around whatever, like, what what was that feeling like? Like, oh, my God, I'm, like, literally right here. I put up with, like, all the bullshit, and you guys are really going to turn me loose? Like, yeah. I would choke slam everybody. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, that's that's part of the NFL. You know, people – there's so many guys every year that get opportunities, and then for one reason or another, it just, like, doesn't work out. So, um, you know, I knew I was real close, but I wasn't giving up on my dream. You know, I just knew – I. When Cincinnati, when the Cincinnati door closed, I just kind of like immediately turned around and started looking for the next door to open, you know. And then, um, so I really wasn't like discouraged at all. I and that was one part about it. The whole process, I was never discouraged. I was never like, oh man, I'm, you know, what am I doing out here in Oklahoma City or what am I doing down here in Orlando? Like, I'm just spinning my wheels, like of my professional career. Like, no, I, I just was always like, all right, I'm, I'm getting there. I just got to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And then eventually, you know, I just got the opportunity that, that really made the most sense and went up to New England and um, just made things happen. Do you believe in destiny? I think so. I do too. Yeah, because certain things, uh, and you know what's been boggling my mind recently too is um, just some of these decisions that you make as like a younger man, right? And then you, you know, like 10 years pass, say, in my career, and I look back on how instrumental that one small decision was. And like some things definitely have to align 
for you to even get those those opportunities, right? So it's just it's like mind boggling the things like from for right here, like we're me and you are right here having this conversation. This might parlay into something ten years from now that we don't even expect, but it's just there's got to be something to it, you know. There's got to be. It's things are things just align too well, especially in my situation, for there not to be some kind of like plan. Dude, I I like couldn't agree more. It's so I started this podcast on the top of my father's union, like yeah. a year and a half ago, and I had no reason to ever think that it would grow. And yeah. I was like in my head. I swear to God, the first episode, I was like, you know, one day we're going to have a Patriots player on the show. I swear on my life. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you obsess over things for long enough, like things manifest, I mean, I'm hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, when there's, there's something to that, man. And there's something to like, then everything that you do in the back of your mind, like you're, you're still kind of thinking about whatever it is, you know, that's, that's, you're obsessed about, you know, and then it just becomes, it just becomes a reality just because people start believing it. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're there. So maybe in 10 years, me, you and I, we hit up Paul, we open up East side pockets too. That's what this is. Man. <laughs> I know I, that, it would kill anywhere. I mean, the, the quality is so good. And it's, yeah, we'll open one up outside Gillette, dude. We'll be making cake. <laughs> That's right. Um, so you get to the Patriots from the Bengals. Did you notice a, a difference in the organizations like immediately? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Cincinnati is a is a great organization in its own right. But the one thing that I immediately noticed about New England is there was no like there was no nepotism there. There was no like ego. Everybody was kind of on the same even keel with everybody else. It didn't matter what you had done in college. It didn't matter what you had done even the year prior. Um, you know, it was like, it was a clean slate, you know, the season had just started and I got there and it was just like, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter, you know, what you did in college or whatever. All, all that matters is what you do out here on, on the practice field and then what you can do on a game field. And that was something that, that I really like needed because a lot of places you can get into this thing where like, Oh, he's a small school guy. Oh, he has no experience. Like how is he going to actually get out there and, you know, and perform for us? Well, I'm not going to get experience unless I get this opportunity. Right. So New England gives everyone the opportunity to, to go out there and show what they can do. And so that's exactly what happened. They, they started giving me more and more opportunities as I was learning and progressing. And then, um, you know, that first year on the, on the practice squad, I really kind of got, I, you know, grinding my teeth and, and, you know, just, just kind of got the, got the support of my teammates, got the support of my coaches. And then the following season, it all came to fruition. And next thing you know, I'm an NFL fullback, you know. Now, how did you differentiate yourself on the practice squad? Like, how did you, because there's a million dudes on the practice squad who never get bumped up. Yeah, I, I think it was just, you know, like my, my work ethic and just my, like trying to just be, you know, as precise as I can with my, with my job and I'm always working, always trying to get better and, and doing exactly what, 
the coaches want me to do in every situation and just trying to capitalize on on any opportunity. I mean, anytime I was in there for a play, trying to know exactly, you know, the the role I had in the play and try to do it the best I can. And so I think they just saw that. They was, saw I was willing to, to go out there and, like, you know, bloody my nose for the team and, um, you know, pass goals a little bit and, and have fun. And so it was it was just, you know, they were looking for a fullback at the time. They didn't have one on the roster and they were looking for one. And I think I just kind of kept doing the right things in situations. And then I got more and more of their situations handed to me. And, and then, you know, I just kind of made it from there. Just a quick rewind. So when you get to the Pats, not even on a, a team tip, as an organization, as the Patriots, like from top to bottom, like all the business side of things, the way mm-hmm. like Gillette's operated, all of that. Could you notice a stark difference? Because yeah. everyone says like the Patriots, you know, it's like, eh. yeah, hundred yeah. Oh, percent. And I think you can kind of feel that from the organization. It's just looked upon as, as like the premier team, you know, not only because we win, but also for, you know, how much we do in the community and, you know, the way Mr. Kraft handles himself and the way the things that he does, his philanthropic stuff that he does. I mean, you know, he, and like I was saying before with that, like lack of ego between players and the coaches, well, it starts right at the top. I mean, Coach Belichick has absolutely no ego and he's the one of the, you know, arguably the best coach to ever coach the game of football you know and then you take that a notch down the, the greatest quarterback to ever play the game Tom Brady still working like he's a he's a six-round draft pick still working like nobody believes in him and that's just like you see that every single day from these guys that are like at the pinnacle of what they do and you're like well how can I how could I possibly be complacent right now these guys literally have it have everything and they've worked for it all and they deserve it all, but yet they're still working like a dog. They're still putting in all the time, all the, all the hours and just grinding in the weight room and, you know, coach Bills are watching film and, you know, just trying to learn constantly trying to learn. And I'm like, man, how could you possibly take your foot off the gas right now? Like these guys aren't. So I better not or else I'm going to be somewhere else, you know? And so it's, uh, it's easy to just fall into that, that Patriot mindset, man. It's just everybody around there is that way and, and it works and pays off big time. My question is how do they nurture it though? Because like, I mean, pro athletes, like you get a, like a lot of attention to yourself. It's really easy to get caught up in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there certain things or like certain guidelines, like you get there, you're like, all right, you're a Patriot. Now you don't do this. You do do this. No, you know, I don't think they're not really looking to hold anybody's hand and try to walk them through how to be a professional. I think it's like there's there's a certain type of person that, that's kind of the caliber of, of football player, the caliber of man that can go in there and really flourish. And I think you see that, um, you know, through the years and through like the real good teams we've had, like there's always like a nucleus of really good um, not only football players, but really good people. And then that kind of branches down into everybody else. And everybody looks to those guys for, for guidance. I mean, before I was there, it was the Rodney Harrison, the Teddy Bruschi, the Willie McGinnis, um, Troy, Troy Brown, Brown, 
Yeah. Evan Falk. Destiny, I bro. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, you know, and it, and I like Troy has been with us as a coach for like the past few years. And it's like, I mean, everything that, I, that I've seen in Matt Slater, Devin McCourty, Dante Hightower, Tom Brady, Julian Edelman is exactly, that's Troy, you know? Like, so it's just, there's constantly examples of how to be, how to operate. And then everybody just kind of emulates that, you know, it's, it's easy. It's really not like they're like, Oh, here's what you do. Here's what you don't do in New England. It's just like, you better follow along or you're not going to be here. So when you got there and like your career starts picking up, I mean, do you know at the time, like, all right, I'm playing for like a dominant beast or are you just kind of caught up in it and you don't even realize how nasty you guys are? I think, you know, definitely just caught up in it. And um, because, you know, Coach has a good way of humbling us. I mean, there's, there was a couple of times, I remember one year we were like, we had already won 10 games. We, late, we lost one late in the year. And you would have thought we were like one in 10, but at the time we were like 10 and one, you know? And but that one game, like, you know, the Monday meeting after the game, it was brutal, you know, calling people out and just like going through all the low lights of the whole game as a squad, just getting like embarrassed in front of everybody. And uh, he had a really good way of just humbling us and just like letting us know, like, look, 10 games going to get you nowhere in this game, in this league. Um, so really, it was always like there was always something more to obtain and. You know, and then as soon as we get to the playoffs, it doesn't matter what your record was before. I mean, you're just trying to get the seeding, right? So we were always striving for that one seed and get home field advantage in the in the first round by. And a lot of times we did. Um, and then, you know, and then from there it was, all right, well, it doesn't matter how many games we've won. It doesn't matter how dominant you were during the, pre, or the uh, regular season. It's all about the postseason. Know, it's all about what you do from here on out. So there was always something more to obtain and more to like strive for. It was never like, oh look, we've won twelve games this year, or oh, we won fourteen games this year. We're we're gonna go to the Super Bowl. Nah, it was like you won fourteen. Well, who cares? It's you know you got the Jaguars this week in the playoffs. Like let's go. I mean, but there was never a moment where you like sat back, you went home and like put your feet up, watch sports and you're like, damn, we are f- killing everybody. <laughs> well, so, close. Yeah. So, I mean, there was, there was definitely a few games, you know, where like, um, I were you there for the Mark Sanchez butt fumble? I was, I was on the practice squad at the time. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So I was actually at home. That was like Thanksgiving night, right. Or something like that. What'd you um, think when you saw that? Uh, I know. And well, it was like, what, 44 to three or something like that. Um, I was just like, oh, nice. We got a victory Monday coming up. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there was, there's a few games and it was funny. It's funny you say that because a lot of times it was like when, when Gronk was going off and he was just like, nobody could touch him. Um, I remember thinking like, damn, like if he stays healthy, like who's going to stop us, you know? And then we had, you know, we had like LeGarrett at the time, the one year he ran for like 18 touchdowns. So we had LeGarrett running really well. We had, you know, Gronk and Jules doing his thing. And um, yeah, there was definitely some fun times where I was like, shit, I mean, if we, 
if we just keep doing our thing, who's going to stop us? And then it kind of came to fruition with Super Bowl victories and all that stuff. It, yeah, there was definitely moments where I was like, man, we got something going here. Was there ever a, I mean, this is a really dumb question because I'm sure they're all equal, but of all the Super Bowls, what was like, what was your favorite? And was it just like crushed? Was the Eagles loss just like ridiculous? Well, yeah. I'll give you a quick background. So I was at Providence College at the time. Mm-hmm. And for the first two Super Bowls when we were there, so I think that was 2015. When was the back-to-back? Uh, well, we went to three straight. Yeah. So that was uh, 16, 17, 18. And, w- and won and the first two, right? 14 was our first against Seattle. And then that was the Malcolm Butler pick. Yeah. 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 And then that that will, that's what I was going to get to. Um, when you said, what was your favorite? It was that one. And it's twofold because one, it was the way the, the game ended and like how, like, just like that. Oh my God, like what's going on? They're driving down the field. And then all of a sudden, uh, Malcolm picks the ball off and all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, we just won the Super Bowl!" And it was the first time I'd ever felt that, you know? And it was like, it still gives me like chills just thinking about it. I mean, like getting goosebumps. Like, um, it's just like all of a sudden you're like, you're, you know, trying to, you're constantly trying to win and trying to get there to the league. And now you're playing and now all of a sudden a play happens and now you're a world champion. Like, it is just like, you know, (laughs) and like, um, so that was, that was a feeling like I'll never forget. And then also it being my first, I never had anything to like measure that on. So, you know, when we went two years later or then the next year and the next year, I was constantly like, oh, well, you know, down in Phoenix, when we played at Seattle, it was this way, or, you know, when, then when we were in Minnesota, like we played in Houston the year before. And there was always like, Oh, I like that hotel better. Or this, you know, this after party was good, but this one, like, yeah. kind of like getting spoiled, you know, um, like you have all these things to call back on, but that first one was like every, everything from media day to the game, to the after party, everything was like, I was just like a wide eyed little kid, you know? And it was, so that magic of the whole situation that will always be my favorite one, you know? And then thankfully we won it. And then you get to the Eagles game. Um, We're and- real quick. Sorry to even cut you off. So after that game, after the loss, my, my housemates at PC got a storage crate and they propped it up in the back of our house and they grabbed yeah. an aluminum bat and just start destroying. <laughs> <laughs> See, I like like what do they call that? They're like, uh, there were screams through the streets. <laughs> what, what was it like for you? Uh, it was it was brutal. Um, nothing was more depressing than going to the after party after you just lost the Super Bowl. You know, because um, everyone's like trying to have fun and trying to be like upbeat, but at the same time, you know, like you were this close to to like getting exactly what everybody tries to get in the beginning of the season. Um, so it's like, you know, it's definitely like a numb situation, but um, yeah, that game was tough, man. I mean, it was, it was a great game for the game of football because there was so much, so much drama to the game and so much like scoring and offense was just clicking and 
Um, it's just unfortunate the way, you know, that we just didn't have the ball at the end to win the game, but um, it was... Uh, Does it still eat at you? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a constant reminder because like I'm down here in South Jersey, right? Every day I go for a run, I see at least two or three flags of Super Bowl LII champions, you know, or like I Just pass it down. Yeah. <laughs> I pass this one green Jeep every day on my run and it has, uh, what was the score? Like 41-33 as a 41-33 um, sticker on the back. And I look at on it the, every oh, on the back hub, the back tire, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I look at it every single day and I'm like, God damn, you know, we were so close. And, it, and when I came back that off season, back to the Philly area, I was living like right outside of Philly at that time. Um, every street corner had like a guy with a, with a 10 by 10 tent outside selling memorabilia, t-shirts, hats, all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't get away from it. You know, like everywhere I went, I would go to Wawa. And there'd be, you know, there's like sandwiches named after the Philly special. I'm like, can I please just have a moment of, of solace right now? But um, it actually, I, I thought it like, it was something to immediately motivate me for that following year. And, you know, then we got back and everything's always, what have you done lately? And, you know, so I was really proud that we were able to get right back to the Super Bowl and win it this time or the next time. And um, it was, so that was really cool. So how did the administration or the just, how did Belichick and then the coaches and GMs, how do they use the past experiences to motivate? Do you normally, do you look at like the last season or is it all just like full steam ahead? It's a, it's all full steam ahead, but in those kind of situations, like, that that Super Bowl loss, like there's always like a pulling certain things from that just to kind of like, you know, stoke the fire a little bit. Um, you know, it's not like I said before, it's always like, what have you done lately or what can you do now? Like it doesn't matter what happened last year. Now it's a whole new season. Let's like reshuffle the deck and let's go from now, you know? And but there's always like there's always lessons to be learned and there's always things you can look from and pull pull from in your past that, you know, will provide value going forward. But really it's, it's just like some extra knowledge and stuff like that, because nobody's going to crown you champion after you just, you know, lose the Super Bowl just because you were close. You're going to have to earn it all, you know, that whole way through. And so, you know, there was definitely like a, you know, definitely like a turn the page, close that story. But also every once in a while, you'd open it up and just kind of check back and just like say, hey, you guys weren't good enough last year. So you better, you know, tighten up this year. Now, now was it the same thing with like media in the clubhouse? Like, do you like shut ESPN off or is ESPN (laughs) on? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, media. On or off? uh, Off. Off. I mean, and it's the same, like exactly what I just said about that. Primarily media is like, it's like, yeah, it's a no, no to talk about up there because, you know, coach Belichick is always, you know, he's like, you know, those guys only get a a version of what really goes on in here, you know? So let's just like stay in house and and keep it kind of in these walls. Um, But you totally understand. The press conferences are hilarious. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's always pieces that, that he'll take from other people or other teams that just provide motivation. It's like another thing to stoke the fire. Like I said, you know, there's, there's certain, there's certain things that you can like really pull on and, and get good stuff from, um, from the media. So he, you know, every once in a while you walk in and there's TVs constantly like with a schedule and everything all around the building. And, um, every once in a while, like when an opposing team that week puts out a bad, a bad, you know, a uh, little quote in the, in the media somewhere, it's posted up there, you know, like uh, Tom Brady's too old or, or Julian Elman's no good. He's too small, like that kind of stuff. It, and that just provides motivation. You see that, you know, for six days leading up to a game and you're, you're ready to go. You don't have to be told anything, you know, as, as an obsessive psycho, what, what's like one piece of criticism that you've received in your football career that like you always think about and like it, it eats at you? Um, criticism. Um, like, isn't, well, did anyone ever say anything like real negative that just stuck with you? You're like, all right, one day I'm going to, I'm going to show you. Yeah. Well, there was, there was three instances that I can think of, um, a hundred percent. And one, well, two of them were just people flat out telling me I wasn't going to play in the NFL. Um, and this was in high school and then in college. Um, and I still remember the exact place I was in one, I was in AP English class. And the girl in front of me said, yeah, I don't know what we were doing, but I, I like announced that I wanted to play in the NFL. And she like turned around and was like, you're not going to play in the NFL. And then another time it was in college and it was kind of the same thing. And I was like, dude, you're not making it to the league. Like, let's go out and party tonight, you know? Um, and then, uh, and then another one was my, my high school lacrosse coach. <laughs> um, he told me I was too, or actually he didn't tell me, he told my dad that I was too slow to play football in college. And that was always my knock. That was like my sensitive spot is I was always slow. Like even, even when I came out of school, I was training for my 40 and all that. I ended up running like a five Oh three forty. Like I've never seen four on a clock when I ran a 40. So, um, you know, but that, so this speed thing was a super sensitive subject. So I will never forget that. Um, because he had all these ideas on like, Oh, you should play lacrosse. Oh, you should do that. And I was like, nah, man, I just want to go play football. And so that, that was, it's kind of dumb and petty at this point, but it's, it is something that I'll never forget, you know, cause it was a sensitive subject at the time and it still is a little bit. <laughs> now are, are you the type of dude that's fueled mostly by negativity or positivity? Cause it's like one or the other. I'd say negativity. Yeah, me too. You know, I think I've always, I've always felt I had my best games after my worst games. You know, and like when I'm real like down on myself, I'm like, God, I got to do better than that. You know, and and then, you know, when people, obviously I still like remember, you know, these instances where people are like, you know, doubting me and, you know, reading it on Twitter and stuff in the past few years, you know, if I miss a block somewhere and then that definitely motivates me. I mean, it's not to the point where I'm, you know, Michael Jordan, where everyone had ever said anything bad you know, I had to eat his words the next night when he scores 61 on him. Like, and, you know, I don't have that type of ability, but definitely, definitely driven more by, by doubting and uh, negativity than, than people saying, singing my praises, you know, that doesn't really get much out of me. It's called operating from the dark side, man. Yeah. Sir. Quick, Sir. Uh, just quick segue. So you saw last dance. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, um, 
Belichick and Brady are like, they have the same competitive cycle level as Jordan. Like, did you see that? A hundred percent. That was, and actually I didn't have to say it. My wife, um, she's sitting there the whole time we were watching last, last dance together night in and night out. And, um, she like turned to me a few times. She was like, that's like, that's like exactly what, how you talk about Tom, you know, like these certain things. And yeah, I think there's just people that are like, that are just geared that way. You know, they're like, like I was saying before, how Tom like still grinds and works. Like he's, you know, like he's been slighted. Like he has that chip on his shoulder constantly, no matter, you know, he's been playing 20 years in this league and he's done so much more than, you know, 99.9% of the league has, but he's still like just working. He's still, there's still something else that he's going after. Um, and yeah, the one, one thing I always loved about Tom, and this is, this is like what I got from this last dance. Um, when we play in away, away stadiums, um, you know, we're always like in the tunnel and we're always like huddled up. We got the whole team right there. And there's usually a guy with a headset and he's like trying to time everything up. So he'll be like, all right, 45 seconds till you can go out. Right. Well, Tom, like he, he like loved that negativity. Like you, you could hear the fans surrounding the tunnel, like talking all, all kind of bad about us. And, um, you know, doing all that kind of stuff, but he, he like reveled in that stuff. Right. So he'd a lot of times like push that guy aside and we'd go out onto the field, which we weren't supposed to, but we'd just like step a couple steps out of the tunnel just so that people could see us and start yelling. And then, you know, like most of the time he'd like look back at us and just like, you know, give us like a F them all, you know, but he'd use the, the longer t- word, um, and it was like, that was like exactly what we all needed to hear in these like hostile environments, you know, like you go to Buffalo, you can't even hear, you know, when they when we first walk out, cause everyone hates us up there and, and that's a raucous crowd. And like, so feeling that like it's the world against us. And then, and then all of a sudden we got this guy that's like leading our team and he's like, you know what? F these guys, let's go. And then we just like run out. That was that was one of my favorite things about Tom, man. I mean, he always was just, he like reveled in that hate, reveled in people not liking him, and it just drove him. And um, so there's definitely, definitely a sense of that, like Michael Jordan, like ability to just turn nothing into something to motivate him. And it was a, it's a beautiful thing. Same thing with Belichick kind of too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, there's been, you know, all that like controversy that has happened over the past few years, I think, you know, he doesn't speak about it and it's really like kind of a new point inside the, the walls of the stadium. But I think he, you know, he like, he loves kind of just proving people wrong, you know, like he doesn't, he, you know, you can make up whatever story it is you want about anything that he's ever done, but he's just going to keep on doing his thing and putting a team first and trying to build the best football team he can possibly can. And, and I mean, look, the the record says, speaks for itself, man. It's title down, baby. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, hey, I'm, I'm just going to let my producers ask some questions real quick. B, you want to ask yours first? Yeah, for sure. Hey, James, uh, before I ask my question, I just want to say I appreciate the impact you've had, and we're going to really miss you and Gronk in the block and skiing. And oh, also, my, my dad actually played for Brown as a DN back in the 70s when I 
doing the play-by-play, so nice. I've been very, very excited for this episode. Nice. Um, anyways, so my question is, out of all of the unsung heroes over the years, you're one of them, along with guys like Slater and, uh, you know, like Dante and the coaching staff, um, who's an unsung hero that Pats fans don't know about, either on, on the team or the organization, that really gave you guys an edge? Okay. Um, I can I can do both on the team and off the team. Um, on the team, one guy that has really like opened my eyes to a lot um, is David Andrews. He he was injured last year. He had like the blood clot, clot issues in his lungs, um, but that guy is so in control of the offensive line and. You know, when I got hurt, I kind of got – I was able to, like, really look at the game through a different lens because I was like, all right, I'm not playing anymore. Let me just try to, like, watch everybody else and focus on, you know, the whole kind of, like, ensemble that comes together in the offensive football team. And I really, fo- really like, realized how much goes into playing center um, because he's talking, you know, obviously to his, to his offensive lineman, but also communicating with – with the quarterback and like his ability to control it. And then he also hit, you know, he's a little bit undersized for like a normal, you know, uh, NFL offensive lineman, but his ability to kind of like use his, the size that he does have and the, the leverage uh, aspect is like, it's been really awesome to see him develop, you know, when he got there as an undrafted guy and he's really just been like such a key cog, um, you know, playing center for us. Um, so on the team, I'd say him, James White, obviously, I mean, he's, he's getting, you know, a lot of, a lot of love, well-deserved love, uh, recently, but he is just somebody that I am constantly in awe of because he's just the way he handles himself, but also, um, you know, his play is just like second to none. I mean, he's he'd be hard, hard pressed to find a guy more in tune with the, with the, you know, ability to play running back, but also be a protection back, catch the ball. Um, everything that he does is just like, you know, premier elite talent. Um, and then outside of the team, I'd say um, one, Nancy Myers. It's a name that you probably have never heard, but she's the, uh, the director of our scouting department. And also she just, she kind of like wears a ton of hats in there. Um, I like to think of her as like our, our team mom, so to speak. I mean, she handles everything. She handles our traveling like to and from training camp. Um, you know, a lot of like the accommodations with like hotels and everything during camp or, you know, when you're, when you first get there, um, you know, if you're being brought in from another team, she's the first person you talk to in the organization. She handles everything and there's like nothing Nancy can't do. And, uh, and she will, for, will forever have a good, you know, soft place in my heart because, um, you know, she was the first person that ever I ever talked to, you know, in connection with the Patriots. And, um, and then secondly, our equipment staff. We have a, the youngest um, head equipment guy uh, that has ever been in the NFL, Brendan Murphy. And he's got a bunch of guys that just work their tail off. How old is he? I think like in his late 20s, 28, wow. 29. Hustler. Yeah. And he's been working there forever. His grandfather um, 
has worked for the Patriots for uh, 30, 40 years. And he used to bring Brennan in as like a teenager and he just helped, you know, doing laundry and all that kind of stuff. And then he just slowly worked his way up. And then uh, uh, three, four years ago, he got the head, head position and he's handled it like a champ and he does everything. It's like, you know, you kind of take it for granted at times because they are just so on top of everything. If you have a personal need, for your cleats or, or, you know, your shoulder pads or you like your jersey cut a certain way. Um, they just take care of it for you. And it is just like, wow, you know, you like, you know, and again, I, when I, when I got hurt, I kind of got, I was able to like step back and I spent a lot of time with him and his, uh, one of his, one of his guys on the staff, Mike Radman. And, um, and I was just able to like, just see how much work they do and they just do it with a smile on their face. And, um, so it's just got people like that, you know, even in the training room, Jim Whalen, a guy who's been there for, you know, going on 20 years. Um, and he's just like, he's seen it all done and all he's, he handles himself, you know, so well. And you just like put all your trust in these people because they help you, you know, just go out there and do your job. And, um, so you really learn to appreciate all these people in the whole organization, you know. That was a long-hand question for a, a long answer for a question. It was a great answer. Um, hey, Riley, do you want to ask your question? Listen, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to preface. Riley before has put my life on the line with the questions. So yeah. we'll see what she comes up with. Young Nancy Drew hit him. Great question. Great question. Um, no, I'm not worried in the slightest because, um, yes, I think like there's definitely this dramatization of, of, you know, CTE and concussions in football, but really all sport. Um, I think, I think it's, it's kind of one of those things where like, you know, there, yeah, there's, there's definitely that going on and that I don't want to, for in one like I don't want to downplay that situation because that is like an incredibly incredibly delicate thing and I know that it's been a tragedy in a lot of a lot of respects but um you know I think that the game of football is kind of being you know there's like an attack on the game of football in some respect I think you know there's also a, a ton of people that play the game and are fine you know there's there's always like outliers in every situation. So you got to kind of take the good with the bad and, and understand it. Um, I will always allow my kids to play football. I'm in no way going to force them to do it, but I, if they want to play, I'm a hundred percent behind it. I will teach them all. I know about playing it safely um, and trying to teach them the best way, you know, to, to play the game and, and stay safe. But um, I also think there's a, there's a benefit to learning how to play the game of football when you're younger, when you're less likely to injure another person because you're just not strong enough yet. You don't move fast enough. Um, I think there's a good you know, way to learn how to hit, learn how to take a hit um, at a young age where like really, you know, you're kind of fighting with pillows and then, you know, then so you can kind of progress as you get older 
where if, if you start when you're in high school and you're running around at, you know, four, five, four, six, some people, um, you know, and you start hitting then and your body's not used to it, your neck's not used to it. Um, I think that's when you can really get hurt. So I think there's a, there's a benefit to starting young, you know, and I think if my kids are down, um, I'll be right there to support them. Well, dude, your kids better be some animals, man. <laughs> D1, baby. <laughs> no, nah, nah, I don't want to put any, any added pressure on it, but I will wholeheartedly support them in a game of football because I think, um, you know, the game of football teaches you so much about, about being a part of a team and teaches you just how to like, how to grind and, and put other people ahead of yourself, you know? And I, and I, I hope that they, you know, pursue it as a passion because it's something I'm passionate about. So we can share that together. You know, I was terrible, but it made me less soft. Yeah. Yeah. It made I, me way more mentally tough. I I joined my varsity team when I was a junior. I was like probably the worst in the program. I just got obliterated like every practice, every game. Yeah. I I was like Rudy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that's, that's the thing though. I mean, football, football is a a tough, violent sport. Um, So you have to be ready to, to suffer some pain. You know, there's violent, there's violence in it. And so there's parts where you're going to struggle through situations where your shoulders dinged up and you still got to play or like you just took a, you know, it's, you just got smashed and you got to get yourself out of the dirt and line back up and do it again. So I think there's like so many things that you can, you can take from the game of football that, uh, you know, I just think are so valuable to, to becoming a man and, um, becoming a good human being and, and really being humble too. I think you know, football is a r- really good way of humbling people because everybody gets got when you play football. It doesn't matter how long you play for you're, you're going to get, you're going to get it sometime. And, um, so those are valuable lessons. Hey, Lexi. Hello. Is it my turn for a question? Yes, ma'am. Did it. Perfect. So, James, you played in the NFL a couple years ago when kneeling for the anthem was a hot topic issue. Uh, what was your opinion on it then, and has your opinion changed at all since racial tensions have intensified intensified in the past couple weeks? Also a great question. Also a great question. Um, my opinion on it uh, then was... You know, it was uh, it was definitely a delicate thing. I, w- I wholeheartedly supported, um, you know, the you know what what they were kneeling for then, and I still do today. You know, it was uh, um, you know, there's definitely like a uh, I feel like there's a little bit of a miscommunication as to like the you know why they're kneeling and and then how they're doing it. You know, during the national anthem, I think there's like a little bit of a like a disconnect, people can't quite, um, you know, make the connection, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a definitely a worthy cause and it's one that I, you know, will always support. And, you know, a lot of my teammates, um, up in New England, there was a time before, you know, when that, when that was like the big thing, um, you know, they all took a knee and, um, you know, it was kind of like receipt. I had mixed mixed receivings, and um, we kind of got like a a little bit of backlash for it. But then we just decided from then on out, we'd all stand, you know, next to each other with our hand on the next person's shoulder, and um, 
you know, that was our way to kind of show like the unity in the situation. And, um, you know, so I think there's, there's, there's value to it. There's value to, you know, kind of making that, that peaceful protest in that situation. And, um, so I'm all about, you know, just trying to further that cause. And the Patriots are always really interesting when it comes to social issues. Like they, it just seems like you guys just like internalize everything, which I think is like kind of the best way to do things sometimes. Yeah, very much so. I mean, we had a lot of, a lot of, you know, player only conversations and then, you know, also conversations with, with coaches and, you know, we all just kind of wanted to come to an agreement on how we were going to handle it all. And, uh, you know, it, so it was a, there was a lot, you know, hashed out between, you know, everybody in the organization and, you know, how we wanted to represent the New England community. And um, so I, I 100% agree with you on that. I think uh, there's always just our leadership always just kind of steered us in the right direction. And it, it opened up the floor for whoever, you know, has feelings, get them out there. And we'll talk about it and we can all come to like a compromise and, and do what's best for all of us. And yeah, so it was, uh, it was cool to be in there, you know, in those situations, because I think a lot was learned. There was a lot of people like kind of, you know, expressing feelings and emotions. And, um, so it was really, really, you know, unique thing to be a part of. And I appreciate it. I don't want to hold you too long. Is, is slugs with us? Slugs. What a nickname. Hello. I have a question. I was wondering, I recently uh, tore my meniscus, and it's a difficult thing to be dealing with. And I was wondering how, when you got injured in 2015, how did you stay motivated uh, to keep learning about football and keep working hard how did you stay motivated you snapped your, your leg right yeah i broke my tibia yeah oh. yeah it was weird it was like such a freak accident um but yeah they, that was the first time i had ever been really significantly injured in my whole football career it's the first time i missed a game um in like up to that point it was like 20 20 years of playing football first time i had missed a game um and uh it was like a tough pill to swallow and it was like brutal. Um, cause I had never really not had the ability to like walk on my legs. How did it um, happen in game? Yeah, it was in a preseason game. Um, we were down in Carolina and I actually caught a pass and I was getting tackled and the guy like swung me around cause I was trying to like spin out of it and my legs spun my one leg spun. My other leg was still on the ground and it like kicked off of a guy's helmet and then just snapped and it was just it was like a clean break it didn't like you know do that Paul George yeah no no there was no blood there's no nothing spoken through the skin so I actually just thought I really like slammed my shin I thought it was bruised so I tried to stand up and then I like clicked and I felt pain that I'd never felt before so I just laid back down and waited for them to cart uh bring the cart over but um yeah, staying motivated. It was, it was, I stayed up there for my rehab in New England and I was able to kind of go to meetings every once in a while, kind of stay a part of it. Um, and then my new, it was like my new goal had shifted from being the best player that I could be to 
trying to rehab and become the player that I was before, if not better. So I just kind of shifted my, my goal, shifted my drive. Um, and I had a really good uh, group of people that I was rehabbing with, like <clears throat> the director of rehab at the time, Sean Jordan, um, who then since went on with the Bruins and now I believe he owns his own clinic in New Hampshire. Um, really smart guy, always pushing me. And then a couple of teammates that I trained with at the time, um, you know, we all just kind of, we just wore it as a badge of honor. Like we were the rehab crew, but we were like going to go out there and push it. And then once we started, you know, progressing and I could start lifting again, then I just, you know, try to get after it because I didn't have football to take my time up. So I would just, you know, rehab and lift and work out. And I just spent so much time in the weight room. Um, and uh, actually, I came back and, and like set PRs on the squat that following year. Um, and yeah, so it was just like a shifting of, of uh, priorities. You know, it wasn't being a football player anymore. It was now just recovering and being the best athlete I can again. And I actually like taught myself a lot of um, in the rehab process because you, you kind of break everything down into such small things when you're just trying to like use your foot to like walk and again and then start to run and you start to realize like oh man I've been running all jacked up for so long like it was a it was a ability to kind of teach myself how to do everything again from like such a fine point of view it was valuable time honestly you became James Devlin the Bionicle yeah yeah still got a little steel rod in there so whoa <laughs> hey uh Jay Quinn if you're tuned in dude I lost your voicemail you're gonna kill me my college roommate was like he had a fire question for you but I do have uh one more question from a man named Sid Warmbrand sure. voice memo Hold up. Hold up. All right, Sid. It's not working. I I think Sid's question was who was who was the hardest person you ever had to block? Easy question. Landon Roberts. Um he's a patriot for what the past five years. Now he's since moved on to, to Miami this offseason. Um Dude, it just has like no regard for <laughs> for like human life when it's like when he like locks in on on you and you're a fullback or a guard or whatever trying to block him, um, you know. And he's a relatively like a smaller guy for for a linebacker. I mean, I think he's like you know maybe six foot, um, probably like two forty, maybe two fifty. Um, but built like so stout and just low to the ground and uses that leverage and has like just this final step into contact and pop. I mean, we've had like some hellacious collisions in training camp and in practice. And um, I mean, just last year they mandated the first couple of days of pads. We, he and I could not hit each other. If we could not be on the same, in the same play, if it was like a direct run, um, because they didn't want uh, either of us to get injured, you know. Um, so Bill actually said, "Like we don't, we don't want to see it. We don't want the battle of Titans, James." Yeah, um, and it was. I mean, the guy was just like reckless. And I mean, you look through the years, he was dropping Joe Thomas. Um, you know, he 
offensive lineman that outweigh him by a hundred pounds. He'd just go and like put him right on their ass. It was ridiculous. The guy could just like hit like nobody I've ever seen. Um, and, uh, but really it like was valuable for me because going against him in practice every day and we had a really good relationship. Um, like we knew when to turn it on and when to turn it off and when to like kind of uh, play it good. But training camp, it was always on and it always is because you're competing then. Um, so in the locker room, he was like, hey, man, I'm going to try to snap your back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really was like that. And then, uh, um, yeah, he was just a, he was he was a machine when it came to hitting, man. And he's put it on on tape. Uh, I mean, you can look. He let, the Super Bowl against the Rams, he put um, – they have a real good guard. His name is is fleeting me right now. But he, I mean, he he came up to the second level to block your landing, and he just like sent them right back, and and then you know made the tackle right on top of him. It's like it's beautiful to see. But it was also awesome to be able to go against that in practice, and then be able to learn. And you know, if I came in too high, he was gonna let me know it. So I always knew to keep my pads down in practice, and then I try to translate that into the game and it it worked you guys should get matching tattoos be, yeah <laughs> be fire Gosh, brothers <laughs> um okay well hey can i ask one more question from the research squad let's do it sure yeah uh we just wanted to know james who do you think the most attractive patriot i was gonna ask that lexi i was gonna ask that <laughs> what's wrong with you man let me do my thing over here <laughs> Hit. Can't get any respect around here, dude. This is my this was my question because I think it's a debate. I was asking the girls on the team. I was like, "Yo, which Pats player do you guys like have the biggest crush on?" And they were like, "And I tossed in the a classic names that you. I mean, you're a handsome dude. I'm a handsome dude, but these other dudes they might have a step up on us. Yeah. Who, who do you think's the most handsome Pats player is? Edelman, Brady, Garoppolo, or Amendola?" Oh, or Chandler Jones. <laughs> um, I I don't know, man. That's that is a tough question. And when they are all like dressed up, like when we're going away games, it's like, what are you competing against each other? Like you guys look so good, and I'm just over <laughs> here trying to like slap something together, slap a tie on, and um, yeah, it's uh, um, it's a tough question, man. Tough question. Um, Dude, I, I said that, Brady. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, he is, he's kind of the godfather of like the good looking Patriots, you know, <laughs> he was the original one. Um, yeah. And then Danny is just so cool. You know, he's just like, he's like effortlessly cool. Um, but, you know, Pause. he's got a good look. And again, you, get, you know, he's got a good look right now is David Andrews. Uh, I was just talking about, he's got a freshly shaved mullet. Um, and dude, it's, it's an elite haircut. I'm sure it'll get a lot of publicity once the NFL starts back up. But uh, dude is looking pretty suave with a with a mullet. He's, he got some like some steps in the side every once in a while. Um, so yeah, yeah, Tom, we gotta go, Tom. You know what these girls said? They're like Amendola, hands down. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, hey, everybody's got different tastes, you know. I was like, you're talking about the goat. <laughs> go watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, hey, man, I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I, I, I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, maybe we can do this again sometime. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, listen, we have two ending bits. The first one is called GDP sales mode. 
Uh-huh. So I'm going to pull up my phone. I'm going to pull up the stopwatch. And I'm going to give you the floor for 40 seconds to pitch or say whatever you want. And I don't know if you're like selling any products right now, like a book or something. Like that's usually what you do. But if you just want to hit us with some of that, uh, that Stephen Hawking talk, we could do that too. <laughs> All right. Shit, this, this is pressure. Uh, let me just pull it up real quick. All right. Five, four, three, two, one. Sales mode, go. All right, so uh, this is James Devlin, ex-NFL fullback with the New England Patriots, and today I'd just like to talk to you about uh, working hard. You know, um, I think everybody, everybody is, uh, is, is we're, get, we're getting into this laziness right now. We got, you know, the coronavirus, we were in our homes for three months, and now we're, you know, being born out into the world again. So let's, let's all just, uh, I kind of, uh, let's just like strap it back on, put it, you know, get your lunchbox and, and go back to work and let's all get it done again. Come on. Done. Yeah. That was weak. All that was, good. But that's also tough. I mean, I don't even know what to talk well, about. Well, well dude, you <laughs> on the spot, but I, I mean, clearly you're a workhorse. If the only thing you can think about is hard work. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and hey, th- this is how we start and end the show. So you say, hi, your name, James Devlin, and yeah. is my golden hour. Directly after no break, hi, your name, and that was my golden hour. Say that again. Hi, James Devlin. Hi, I'm James Devlin, and this is my golden hour. Then okay. Hi, I'm James Devlin. That was my golden okay. hour. Okay. Okay. Hi, I'm James Devlin, and this is my golden hour. Thanks. Hi, I'm James Devlin, and that was my golden hour. Well executed from an Ivy League guy, man. <laughs> hey, uh, thank you so much for doing this. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. And listen, I'm going to, after when we're done with this, I want to get your address so I can ship you a new sweatshirt. All right. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, Paul, if you're still tuned in, me and James would love to show up to the shop some, sometime soon and test out that new chicken Caesar salad, baby. <laughs> I know Thayer Street looks so much different now, man, but uh, Eastside Park is still just holding on to the roots, man. It's awesome. Well, there's a Chinese spot right across from now called Chinatown. You probably saw it your last year, right? I don't know. I, I don't think I remember that one. Hey, what was the name of that sandwich place? Not on Thayer Street. It was like Meeting Street pickle. Cafe. No, no, no. Meeting Street Cafe is where you can eat like a gluttonous pig at all hours of the night. Yeah. No, what's the name of that sandwich place where you like show up, they give you the pickle? Oh, uh, Jeff's. Jeff's. Yeah. That's yeah. That's fire. like down the hill a little bit. Uh, yeah. I, that is a good spot. What's on RISD, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right on RISD's campus. And it's like, everything's like chalkboards. They got everything written on. Yeah. That's Jeff's superlative sandwiches. That place is smacking. Yeah. And, and Hey, Sean from Fort Boston. Thank you again. And, uh, could your kids rock a small? Cause I got some smalls too. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, my oldest is four, but he'll grow into it. I mean, hey, man, he better go D1. <laughs> um, let's hope, man. We'll see. All right, brother. Hey, thank you so much, man. I appreciate right, you. Guys. Yep. Have a good one. Have a good one, bro.